if not now, when, once you're diagnosed, you know, like if, yeah, can't seem to hit that rock bottom that everyone keeps talking about. So you just kind of <laughs> keep on going. <laughs> Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy. And I'm Steph. try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. Amy, it's another thrilling edition of Cancer for Breakfast. That it is. That it is. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I've recovered from our misadventures of the other day. I didn't know if we were going to bring that up, but we must. I feel that we owe our listeners that kind of authenticity. And integrity. Let's just start by saying this is the third time we have attempted to record this episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is. That's true. The first time we did it like a regular episode. Mm-hmm. The second time we thought because of the content of the episode. Which is alcohol. We're talking about alcohol. Yes. That we should be drunk. We thought, let's just have a couple of drinks and yeah. talk about this in the grand tradition of like drunk history and things like that. <laughs> and then what happened? I won't say that we completely tanked it, but mm-hmm. we definitely did ramble for about two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. And we forgot how annoying drunk people are, especially if you're not drunk. Uh-huh. And I don't know how many of you guys just get wasted and listen to podcasts. It's definitely not what I do. I would assume it would be the minority (laughs) of of our listeners. (laughs) So do you want to like have some wine and I don't know, listen to some cancer podcasts tonight? (laughs) (laughs) It's a real wild Thursday night. And then we were totally hung over the next day. We did nothing Mm -hmm. for the podcast. Mm -hmm. We did we did stuff Mm -hmm. because, you know, we're people in the world. We have to. And so here we are. So here we are. Sobered up. Third time's a charm, I think. This is the one. Full of carcinogens from the abuse. That's true. That's right. We've lived to tell the tale. I mean, we didn't get like wasted, you guys. I don't need them to judge us. No, but that's what we're talking about today is how people judge you when you drink alcohol Mm -hmm. and you have cancer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also why maybe you should consider not drinking alcohol when you have cancer. Or also why you should consider making your own decision Mm -hmm. about whatever. Exactly. But we do have some facts. And we both are people that do have alcoholic beverages from time to time. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk more about it. But also, it's fucking complicated. That it is. And let's discuss why it's complicated. Let's because, do. fuck, we're all just human. Okay? We're all just doing our best. And um, we didn't create this society. We didn't start the fire, as it were. <laughs> <gasps> we didn't sign up for this. We just got our dumbasses dropped into a culture that um, 
use this alcohol to cope and to celebrate and to connect with people. Socialize. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. You don't just suddenly stop participating in that culture because you have cancer. I mean, you can. Some people do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very easy to stop for some people who just use it as a way to not stand out in social situations by not drinking. We all are so different around alcohol. Other people drink at home by themselves while they're watching wonderful television series. <laughs> That's right. But I think my point was that even if you do choose to be sober, like before cancer, after your diagnosis, whatever it is, you still are a part of this culture that um, kind of reveres alcohol and it's so present all the time. So mm-hmm. it's tough. It's tough to make those decisions for yourself. It's tough not to be questioned from either side of it. Like, mm-hmm. why are you drinking? Why aren't you drinking? Right. And internally, you might be asking yourself that too. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like when you get cancer, there is this assumption or this pressure that you are going to be this exceptional person all of a sudden who like only eats organic and totally avoids dairy for some fucking reason. And like Mm -hmm. you never have sugar and you run a mile every day. And Mm -hmm. if you weren't that person before you get cancer, chances are pretty fucking slim that suddenly with all this added trauma and fatigue and weird shit happening with your body, you're suddenly going to be like a triathlon person. Right. I do think that people that don't have cancer absolutely do believe that they would become that if they were diagnosed. Yeah. Which is part of why it's so easy for them to point their fingers because they truly in all honesty within themselves think, Jesus Christ, if this ever happened to me, that would be the sign that I would need to quit drinking wine or whatever. And I would right. I would never be able to touch it again because the guilt I would feel or whatever. Yeah. And that just gives them the permission to. Um, it's just the thing we always talk about where you're pointing out how you're you're different than that person. Mm-hmm. I think people without cancer are constantly trying to separate themselves from people with cancer and just rationalizing how and why it wouldn't happen to them mm-hmm. or how they would do it better. And so they wouldn't have a bad outcome, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, well, if I got cancer, I would totally change the way I eat. Yeah. And then everything would be fine because they have been so saturated in this culture that says everything is up to individual responsibility, even though like as right. cancer people now, we know that there are so few cancers that are dependent on the environment and, you know, choices that we make. And also, we believe this because we are these people. Like, I think we did probably used to think, well, I would just do this if that ever happened to me, which it won't happen to me. Yeah. And then it does happen. And then you realize you're just you. It's kind of like that thing, like everywhere you go, there you are. It's the same thing with cancer, right? Where it's just like, (laughs) oh, shit, I'm still me. I just also have cancer. And it's still hard for me to wake up at six in the morning. Oh, fuck. What a shocker, you know? Yeah. And it's still hard for me to do the recommended minutes a week of exercise that they tell you lowers your risk of recurrence or lowers cancer risk in general. Exactly. But there are still only 24 hours in the day. Uh, Yeah. How do you have enough time in the day to eat the right number of servings of fruits and vegetables and grains and fiber and also like go for 
a run or do, you know, mm-hmm. 60 minutes of yoga? Like, do these people never sleep? Well, you make it your job. Like, you make it the thing you're super into and it becomes like your hobby, your pastime, your passion. There isn't a lot of room. And I mean, I'm going to probably get hate mail if I say there's not a lot of room for much else because that's not necessarily true. But it does. It takes so much time. Like meal planning, the amount of time it takes to exercise or mm-hmm. even like to drive to the place where you exercise. Yeah. If you go to a gym, you know, or to shower afterwards before you go to meet a friend for coffee. Like, how do you have time to do it all? Especially if you work, you know, if you if you work 40 hours a week or even more. Yeah. I, I don't understand how you're supposed to fit it all in. And so, you know, people do get real high and mighty about about cancer people's choices and how they eat and what they drink and what they do and all that but the fact is like we're just normal people who don't like to go on runs or you know want to have a drink with friends but I do like exercising and I have gotten really really into the routine of going to the gym constantly or trying to pretend that I'm a runner enough to like run a 5k or something like that all of these spells have not been like consistent over the course of like 10 years Mm -hmm. you know it'll be like oh i'm really really into going to spin class for eight months but eight months is a long time to go to spin class like three times a week or whatever yeah i got in very good shape but i didn't have a lot of time for much else you know like it was just like after work going to spin take a shower do this go home you know and then suddenly it's like 8 30 at night right i don't know I don't know either. If if it's something that is fun to you, that's great. And I think it is fun to a lot of people. And some of it is is just maintenance. Like whether you want to do it or not, we do have to like move our bodies. That's just a fact of being a human being. But I think that the judgment is just the the shittiest part of it where people see you in a different light. Like you have this extra responsibility now and it feels like it should go the other way. Like when I was diagnosed and I had a drink of alcohol when Mm -hmm. after I was diagnosed and I got hives and I told my oncologist and she was like, oh, no, you can't even have a cocktail now and you have cancer. Like, what the hell? You should get to enjoy that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was just nice for her to be so realistic about Mm -hmm. it, like without that judgment. Yeah. She could have just been like, well, maybe it's a sign you shouldn't be drinking or something, you know? Exactly. She could have been. Instead, she was like, girl, you already have cancer. Just like those other people are the ones that shouldn't be doing it. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't say that. Just kidding. But we asked on Instagram about what people feel like about drinking alcohol if they get judged or um, if they feel internal judgment. Uh, And we got some pretty good responses, I thought. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Tell us. Yeah, we heard from somebody who says, I stopped drinking while going through my harsh chemo. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Who wants to drink when you're in chemo? Um, But now that I'm done with active treatment and I'm just doing preventative radiation, I don't give a fuck. And I'm going to drink because I deserve it because I'm alive and that deserves celebration. Hmm. And like, I hear that. Yeah, totally. And we also got somebody who said... People judge me for drinking, Mm -hmm. but sometimes that glass of wine is the easiest way to ease pain without other side effects. True. True. Yeah. Like some people don't want to turn into pharmaceuticals to have a little bit of stress release, too, which is kind of what your oncologist might prescribe you, you know? Absolutely. And there's so much stigma around narcotics. Mm -hmm. There's so much stigma around 
antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication. And sometimes you just don't want to, for whatever reason, ask for that Ativan prescription or that Xanax prescription, or you don't want to be in that position of appearing like a drug seeker or whatever, even though you have cancer, which is the stupidest thing. But there is just a huge stigma. And if you're not comfortable and alcohol is so much more accessible, I totally get why that would be the go-to. Yeah. And also some people like... I take an Ativan if I'm really stressed out to calm down or like help me sleep at night if my mind is really racing. I like to drink alcohol to like, it's like an upper for me, you know, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. I actually don't like drinking when I'm really upset, which I think is good for for being someone who does like to drink. Yeah, I just don't like it. It doesn't make me feel better when I drink when I'm like really sad mm-hmm. or really angry. I mean, when I'm a little bit stressed, I definitely do. But yeah. <laughs> but I mean, like, I don't want to take it out of van and then like go to my friend's barbecue. You know? <laughs> like, right. Exactly. I want to like go to my friend's barbecue and like have a couple of beers with her. You know, I say with her because there's a pandemic. So she's the only one there. Me and her. <laughs> it's true. It's a really I big yard. <laughs> Just kidding. We're all vaccinated now. Yay. Um. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like what what I was saying before, you can't just expect people to radically change their social lives and stuff just because there there is an elevated risk. But that risk was there before, too. And there are so many risks mm-hmm. in life. And I think that something we do have to remember is that you compare the risk to the reward and you make a personal decision about how you feel. And if you feel like alcohol is too risky for you and you don't want to feel that guilt, then great. Don't drink. Yeah, that's totally valid. But if you feel like you're really bummed that you can't go have a glass of wine at your book club or whatever, Mm. then like, fuck it. Just do what makes you happy if you're not being harmed. You know, if it makes you happy. (laughs) Oh, but if we follow her advice, Cheryl Crow got breast cancer. Oh, no. Cheryl Crow did us like that, but didn't she? She's doing well. Here's a question. Did Cheryl Crow get breast cancer after Lance Armstrong had testicular cancer? Were they still together? Are they still Ooh, together? I don't know. They're not. Mm, I don't think they are. I mean, I don't know. We're cancer people, Steph. We should know this. We should really be dialed into the cancer celebrity uh, goss. I- oh, we should start a gossip website for cancer celebs cancer celebs oh man we should that sounds like a marketable website idea really really sad it would be sad it would be let's not do that let's (laughs) just do this podcast let's just stick with um hey can i read this email yeah we actually got an email that we should have read earlier in the episode because this is exactly the whole shebang And I really identify with this woman because I feel a lot the same. I do have a lot of guilt about it. And I do wonder if I should just fully abstain. So here is what this gal named Jen says. Hi, Amy and Steph. Love the podcast more than I can say. Recently, I had my husband listen and now he is a fan too. He says it helps him understand my journey better. I've recommended it to multiple non-cancer community friends as well because it's such a great resource for those hoping to be an ally or looking to support someone in treatment. I have re-listened to many episodes when I need a bit of cheering up because it makes me feel like I'm hanging out with two besties who just get it. 
So thank you right off the bat for articulating many of the same thoughts and feelings better than I've been able to. Love, Jen. Just kidding. I just wanted to make it seem like that was the whole letter. Thanks so much, Jen. I mean, <laughs> let's talk about that for the rest of the episode. No, that is so sweet, Jen. So she does continue. I finished breast cancer treatment last year, surgery, chemo, radiation, and now I'm on tamoxifen for the foreseeable future. Before cancer, I drank relatively regularly. I've always enjoyed it and have never felt out of control. I almost said very out of control, which makes... (laughs) (laughs) She would have been like, it's not what I said. I don't feel very out of control. (laughs) She's always enjoyed it and it's never felt out of control. I would drink a glass of wine or beer here or there during the week, but typically enjoyed several, like three to four-ish on the weekends, which means five to six. People always lie. (laughs) It's okay. We know know the math. (laughs) We're not your doctor, Jen. Yeah, you can tell us the truth. Listen, we're cool. I'm cool. You're cool. It's fine. (laughs) I like to eat, drink, and be merry with friends and family, and sometimes that was very merry. I drink much less now because of cancer risk. Like Amy, I am so paranoid about reoccurrence. And of course, I know alcohol is a big risk factor, but I still drink from time to time. I still enjoy it, even though it causes my hot flashes to skyrocket. Girl. Now I abstain completely during the week and on Fridays and Saturdays usually stick to one or maybe two drinks tops, which my oncologist has said is okay as long as I'm eating healthy and exercising regularly, which I am. Good job, Jen. That being said, I typically feel very guilty the next morning after drinking, however lightly, and spiral down the rabbit hole of recurrence anxiety. So this past weekend, my friends were in town, and we went to the Edgefield for two nights. It was so fun, but I drank a lot for two days straight, and now I feel terrified that I broke my body and caused the cancer to come roaring back with abandon. For two days, I forgot all my worries and cares, and it is just such a relief. But now the fun is over and I'm stressed. I wonder if you guys have thoughts on this. How guilty do you feel after drinking and how much feels like too much for you? Obviously, going on a bender is not great for your body at any age, let alone at 40 for breast cancer. But sometimes I just want to stop all this worrying and have a good fucking time. Thanks for not judging me. Who says we didn't judge you, Jen? <laughs> Just kidding. We didn't. And we would never. And thanks again we for making this never. shitty club a fun place to be. Lots of love to you both, Jen. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. I totally identify with every single thing she said. I feel honestly the same way about feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. We were talking earlier today about flax and how like mm. we were doing all this research, I asked my nutritionist if flax was okay to eat because it's like a phytoestrogen and or both estrogen receptor positive. And I feel like it's a little bit funny that I'm willing to do all of that kind of research for one thing that I'm like, it's so good in my smoothies. It has omega-3s or whatever. But then when it comes to alcohol, I'm kind of like, eh, who cares? (laughs) But I think that's just the plight of a cancer patient. Like there's so much to worry about and there's so much to feel guilty about and you don't need to add to your guilt. Like, like I said before, I think that risk reward interrogation is really something that we have to do for ourselves. And like, if you're feeling so guilty about it, have a mocktail. (laughs) Just kidding. I hate mocktails. (laughs) 
people always recommend mocktails as like, you know, Cosmo wrote an article how you can drink less. And then it's like, try these three mocktail recipes. And it's like, (laughs) dude, nobody who actually enjoys drinking gives a freaking crap about a mocktail. I mean, great. That's lovely. But it's like it. It's not the same thing. Like it's a poor substitute. It's like saying, "Have you tried coffee?" Yeah, coffee's awesome. <laughs> I drink it every day. Have you tried coffee as a drink? Yeah, that has nothing to do with whether or not I want to have beer at my friend's barbecue. You know, it's true. It really is just as mystifying to me why anybody would just be like, "Wait a minute, I could put elderberry syrup." in soda water with a lemon and some honeysuckle <laughs> jesus you could hold it in your hand just like normal people i can hold it in a glass wait yeah. does, does this come with ice <laughs> it kind of so, makes you wonder uh, what what the college kids <laughs> are doing with all that beer when they could be over here with this Cosmo recipe with this syllabub. Yeah, it's true. Uh, fuck a mocktail. But, um, <laughs> but like, what were you going to say? Oh, I had to take a sip of my soda water, Your which soda is a mocktail. Water. It's like I'm drinking soda water because I'm thirsty. It serves a purpose. A mocktail is lovely. It has nothing to do with whether or not I want to drink a glass of wine. Totally. We got another response from Instagram where this person says, I stopped drinking on a regular basis three years before my diagnosis, trying to get a hold of symptoms I was having. I changed up my eating as well as started pole dancing. By the time I did get a diagnosis, I was actually really healthy, except for the stage four metastatic colorectal cancer. Mm -hmm. Two years into treatment, and I'm still really healthy, according to my oncologist, except for the cancer. So I do agonize about having a drink sometimes, which I don't do often. I have guilt to a lesser degree about indulging in ice cream, but you got to do these things occasionally or why are we bothering? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of what Jenna's saying too. Like she just wants to cut loose every once in a while. And it sounds like she's being so responsible about Seriously. it. I feel like she's drinking less than most of the people that I know, but maybe I just associate with people who drink because I drink. But I mean, obviously I have a lot of sober friends and people that drink less than that, but that just seems very average to me. I don't feel like you're drinking a lot, Jen. No, not at all. But like one thing I like to do, and I know you do this too, Amy, is like take a break from drinking. Take like yeah. a month or two months or three months off from mm-hmm. drinking and see how you feel. Like yeah. give it enough time that you can really um, assess what's happening with your body. And if you do miss it, miss the alcohol, I mean. Yeah, I do think taking a break is awesome. I think being yeah. sober would be awesome. I think I could totally get into it because I do think you feel so much better even if you're drinking not much at all there's still a difference between not at all and having a few drinks that I just feel better I do admit that but I find it so fascinating to notice the times when I do feel uncomfortable when I'm not drinking like if I am at a social function and I'm like the most social person you'll ever meet in your life like I live to socialize (laughs) And I would never think I have social anxiety, but I absolutely do. And I only noticed it, I guess, during these breaks from drinking where I would kind of be like, oh, I totally like I'm having this like natural instinct that I want to like 
go get another drink, but I yeah. am not drinking. Like, but like, what a weird instinct to have when I'm not drinking at all. And then I'd realize, oh, it's because that's my out to get out of this group of people I'm talking to is to say, yeah. I'm going to go grab a drink to like walk out of the situation and excuse myself. And then when I didn't have that, I realized like, oh, that wasn't actually even about wanting another drink. It was about wanting to get out yeah. of a conversation. And that was like, just so interesting, like just finding out little tidbits like that about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise know if you didn't take yourself out of your normal situation. I don't know. I think it's cool. Totally. It's just like habits, you know, if it's been part of your habits as far as like socializing for so long. Yeah. You definitely have to prepare yourself for that to change and yeah. to have to feel a little bit of discomfort and work through it. I mean, I didn't drink much at all after getting diagnosed because I was just like I couldn't eat. I just didn't drink. Yeah. And then in treatment, I barely drank. I might have had like a beer, like, I don't know, five times over the course of many, like, just like not often and obviously not on chemo weeks and all of that stuff. Yeah. But I did very sporadically have a drink. But then I quit for like four months just because I was so freaked out about risk. Yeah. You know? Mm hmm. And I think also like our bodies change a lot mm. through treatment and stuff. And another person that responded said that they do feel judged kind of, but more to the point, they say, I feel like absolute crap after I drink mm -hmm. and we're talking only like two to three drinks. Yeah. So I definitely limit how often I drink. I usually only drink when celebrating or a special night with friends. It takes days before I feel better again. Yeah. And part of that is just getting older, too. But like, God, it's so true. You get like the week long hangover mm -hmm. now. You actually reminded me that I had said that I didn't like the way drinking made me feel because the next day I would feel kind of chemo-y. Like it yeah. gave me like a similar instead of like just feeling a little hungover, a little whatever. It was very specific to a chemo-y feeling like kind of somewhere weird in my like throat and chest and just this weird which I mean it might be like the damage chemo actually did to me being like yeah um triggered don't don't say trigger <laughs> like damaged by alcohol I guess you know like yeah, a, you have like a flare-up or whatever flare-up I'm having a flare-up of chemo right now <laughs> um but it gave me the total creeps and I didn't like it but you reminded me of that yeah and I realized that doesn't really happen anymore, which is good. Maybe it means my body is really come around the bend back to. Yeah, you're healing. I'm healing, but still creepy feels. It's just weird to like abuse your body after it's been so abused, just even mentally. I feel mm -hmm. like yep. something just feels not right about that to me, but I still like a drink here and there. It totally is true. It does feel weird to abuse your body when it's going through so much. And I think like that is definitely where I see it making sense for people to get super into exercise and things like that and like mm -hmm. healthy eating. And I think it makes a lot of sense to me to go that route of like celebrating your body and being grateful yeah. that your body is like making it through. Mm -hmm. um, but I also see the trauma and the fear and the anxiety that people need to cover up with the most easily accessible substances. 
that like both seem so valid to me. Yeah. And there's a, you can do a combo too. <laughs> doesn't have to be one or the other. Sure. It is so confusing though, because like they have done studies. There is data that any alcohol will raise your cancer risk for a variety of cancers. That is real. Yep. It goes up more and more by how many drinks you're having and how frequently and it's different for men and women. Like it's all the charts we've all seen a million times, mm-hmm. but it's really not cut and dry or it's not clear enough for me. And clearly it's not clear enough for Jen and so many of us to understand what we're really doing to our bodies, because most of the studies that they've done are for just the general population and cancer risk. Right. Yeah. So like we are a part of that. And I'm already somebody who has gotten cancer and however much my past drinking has had to do with that, however much it was hormones, however much it was pregnancy, like whatever, or people that have family genetics involved, nobody knows, blah, 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 blah. But all the studies are for before that, not all of them, but when we're talking about it raises your risk by X amount. Yeah. And then the studies for after cancer or during cancer, like for recurrence rates, it's not as cut and dry as that at all. Like, yep. and I mean, I was just reading a study, it was like from 2016. So who knows? But it was, <laughs> and it was so weird. I, I should have sent it to you. I thought about doing it, but it was saying drinking after breast cancer does not increase your risk of mortality, but it could increase your risk of local recurrence. Hmm. But then later it said it could increase your risk of metastases. So I was like, did you do this study for six months? Have you, how long have you been following these women? You know, if you assume everyone has a 100% risk of mortality, eventually. (laughs) I mean, was this about drunk driving accidents only or (laughs) does this have anything to do with cancer cells or cells? I mean, it's hard too, because what I imagine is that, you can't necessarily ethically do a lot as far as alcohol research in metastatic patients because what are they going to like? It's not like they can say, okay, you 25 people are going to drink four cocktails every single day and we'll right. see what happens. Like nobody wants to tell somebody to do that. So the fact that two people underreport their alcohol consumption to their doctors and. Right. Which is so be, common, right? People yeah. love to lie about their alcohol consumption. Yeah. So it's got to be really hard to get a controlled study happening for people post cancer diagnosis because that burden of shame is just so much more. It is weird, though, to me that they clearly know that that is tied to risk. It just isn't studied enough. But then people like us get breast cancer and nobody asks us if we want to have our information collected for this use. Like, why is Mm -hmm. every single woman who's being diagnosed not being asked if they want to be in all of these studies. Yeah. It makes me crazy. I'm just like, let me just tell you whatever you want to know. If it'll help. Yeah. Some kind of like registry. Totally. Especially if you're like anonymous, like who gives a shit if you know, there's no reason to lie. Yeah. But the other thing when you're talking about how, you know, if you're metastatic, how do they follow you and whatever? It's hard to know how much of our past alcohol use is still what's responsible for our risk still being up too because there's like uh what's it called the 
something Genesis. Neon Genesis? <laughs> no. It's Sega Genesis? <laughs> These are all great things. Oh, Amy, you were going to say something and you lost it. Well, something that I was reading that actually ties into rats is that a lot of these studies neglect to say this was in an article in, New, in the New York Times that was actually really good. It was about like sounding the alarm on alcohol risk is kind of misleading. Like it's still a legitimate concern. But what you also have to realize when you're looking at these studies is that um, of alcoholics, like the data says 80 to 90 percent of people with alcoholism have been smokers at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so that is a factor that doesn't seem to matter in these alcohol studies. But obviously, we know that your risk for cancer goes up if you're a smoker. Mm -hmm. So how do they quantify that? Like, how do they add that in? I don't think that they do because I don't think they really can. Right. And so what even say you are a casual drinker, you know, like social drinker, glass of wine once a week mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, but you were a server in a restaurant where there was smoking, you know, obviously that's mm -hmm. going to increase your risk too. And so there are just so many factors that, yeah. that make it really hard to view the data like accurately. Yeah. Carcinogenesis. Ah, that's the word I was looking for, which is like the four stages of how cancer cells get damaged and become cancer cells, I guess. Yeah. But also the name of our new band. That's what I was going to say, too. I love it when you say the same <laughs> joke I was thinking of. Yes. Yeah, that's a Genesis cover band, but we donate all of the money from our shows and our merch to cancer <laughs> research. Sue, Sue, Sue. Every show's a benefit show. Cancer Genesis, or what's it called? Carcinogenesis. Genesis. Perfect. I love it. Let's, let's <laughs> take this idea and run with it. Um, but, um, boom. but my point I was going to say when I couldn't remember that word um, is how many years of being a moderate drinker that have already damaged your cells and done whatever, and then you're carrying on and you already have cancer. But then, like, how, how long do you have to quit? drinking to undo the damage you've already done if you are somebody who has been a moderate drinker for many years, right? Yeah, because they do always tell us stuff like that. The thing too that I think people the problem with like all of this data that we hear or the if you, you know, only drink one drink a a day or whatever, yeah. then your risk is this, but if you cut it down without the science to support that, I feel like that along with smoking there's like the syntax like mm -hmm. aspect of it too, where we're like, Oh, it's just the government doesn't want us to have a good time. You know, <laughs> like I feel like if they followed it up with the science that people would have a better grasp of it because we do, we hear like your risk of developing lung cancer goes down with every single day. You don't have a cigarette or whatever, mm -hmm. but like how, how is that true? Tell people the truth. And I feel like they would be better able to absorb it. Yeah. It's so confusing. It is confusing. Before this episode, I was like doing some research, even though it doesn't seem like I've done any research based on every single thing I've said in this episode. But <laughs> so true. I was reading. Um, and I came across some article that it was, 
a handful of years old, but it was like 111 things that cause cancer, a complete list or something. Uh huh. It seems like this came out maybe like around the time when they found out that all like, like deli meat is really mm-hmm. a known carcinogen and everyone was like, what? You know, um, <laughs> But I was reading all of these things and some of them I was like, what the fuck? Like wood for shoemakers and shoe repair people, cobblers, you know, Uh huh. their cancer risk is up because of wood particles and leather particles, like particles of leather dust. What? Causes cancer. Leather dust causes cancer. Wood dust from the shoes, too. So there's all this stuff like that. Right. And a lot of it, like those things, I was like, what? But then a lot of it was very obvious stuff that, you know, you're like, yeah, but they were all things. And then it got further down the list. And suddenly the one drug they have listed on this list of 111 things in the world is tamoxifen, which I already knew tamoxifen, which is the drug that like so many breast cancer people take to block estrogen and. Yeah. Um, but it can cause uterine cancer, which, but it's a small risk, but it is a thing. But I just thought it was so interesting because you would think that there might be other pharmaceuticals that might have well, an yeah. increased risk. But that was like the only pharmaceutical that was listed. The rest of the stuff was like inhaling glue, paint fumes, <laughs> you know, and like stuff yeah. like that. And like lead. Oh, man. And asbestos, tamoxifen. <laughs> it's like, oh, ouch harsh toke that hurts radiation same thing though you know like you have that risk of developing a second cancer when you have radiation it sucks i mean yeah being human is fucking hard you gotta pay to play as i like to can't say be a cobbler anymore you can't <laughs> eat cobbler anymore ah, you can't drink a cobbler mocktail with alcohol <laughs> in it <laughs> Would you like to hear about the science behind alcohol and raised cancer risk? Um, only after a song about rodents. Perfect. The American Cancer Society has recently updated guidelines that bring their recommendations more into line about what we actually know about cancer risk and alcohol. And those haven't always jived with like what cancer research facilities recommend, like MD Anderson and stuff. So new guidelines, first of all, explain what happens when alcohol increases your risk is the ethanol and alcoholic drinks breaks down to we always have a hard one, hard time with this one. I I made up a way to to know how to say it. You you say it, and then I'll tell you. Acetaldehyde. Okay, let me try to remember what the the word thing I made up about it. It's acetaldehyde, but acetaldehyde. All right. The way you know how to say it is like, let's say you're like playing hide and seek with a dog, but you can see <laughs> their tail. You want to ask them to hide their tail. And you say, hey, dog, can I get you to ask the tail to hide? Ask the tail to hide. 
I, I love it. Thank you. I will never forget that pronunciation now. Can I say it again? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the ethanol and alcoholic drinks breaks down to acetaldehyde, a known carcinogen. And so that compound damages your DNA, stops your cells from repairing the damage, and allows cancerous cells to grow instead. So um, alcohol also affects the levels of hormones like estrogen. These hormones act as messengers that tell our cells to grow and divide. The more cells divide, the more chances there are for something to go wrong and for cancer to develop. Alcohol makes us less able to break down and absorb vitamins A, C, D, E, and folate. These all also help us protect against cancer. And it also provides empty calories. That's an interesting one. It's just interesting because with breast cancer, I'm sorry, we always talk about breast cancer. We get it. There are other cancers. But with breast cancer, they do find that a vitamin D deficiency is a common thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I am interested to know if people with vitamin D deficiencies are drinkers. Like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we all live in the Pacific Northwest, I know. so we know that we're drinkers. <laughs> Uh, that was kidding. a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, alcohol provides empty calories. And this is a tricky one because, um, you know, they do say don't lose weight while you're in active treatment, but hormones are stored in fat cells. And this is also the thing with sugar is that extra fat on your body does raise your risk for developing certain cancers. Basically, what the American Institute for Cancer Research and the American Cancer Society say is that they know that most Americans are not going to abstain entirely from alcohol. So they've made like realistic guidelines. Mm -hmm. And they say the important thing really is to remember that every time you drink, you increase your cancer risk, which sucks, but is the sad Mm -hmm. fact. So... All of that said, a lot of doctors in this New York Times article that I referenced before say that these studies kind of fail to consider other risk factors and also that the absolute risk is maybe smaller than it seems to be. Mm -hmm. For example, a 30% increase in risk sounds like a huge increase, right? Mm -hmm. But if your risk is 1% of developing colon cancer, say, and you have a 30% increase in that risk, then your risk increases to Mm 1.3%. It's not like you go from a 0% chance of getting colon cancer to a 30% chance of getting colon cancer. Okay. Because that is definitely how I think a lot of people think it is. Absolutely. They do for sure. So like, what is the language that would mean that? So if somebody says, it will raise your risk seven percentage points and your risk is 10%, then it would mean 17%. Right. Exactly. But if they say, if you're, this will increase your risk by 7%, then that's very, very small. Right. Exactly. Whoa, um, so because it's the percent of, of the existing risk. risk. And the doctors also say don't focus on any one disease while ignoring other diseases, like something may be harmful regarding one disease, but good for another, which is what we hear a lot about, like red wine for heart health. Mm-hmm. And I did also read a lot of things that said, clearly, there are better ways to improve your heart health than drinking red wine. Not 
more fun ways. Not more, not more fun ways. Exactly. But the, the evidence is there that it, it can help. And acknowledge the harms as well as the benefits. Consider both cost and joy. So they say, quote, this is the New York Times article. It says these rules may not make for exciting headlines. They may, however, lead to happier and perhaps healthier lives. So I'll post this article in the show notes. I think generally speaking, they're just saying, don't cherry pick your data. You really have to look at the right. whole picture. Um, and that being said, there are these known studies that are rigorous and peer reviewed. And we know that there is an absolute risk of drinking alcohol and developing cancer. But hey, if it's only 30% more, that's, <laughs> that's all. Yeah, I'll drink to that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I like it. I like it, it is confusing though because for people who are done with treatment and they have been told by their doctor based on and again we'll just use breast cancer again um based on whatever type of breast cancer they have based on their age based on their family history based on what treatment they elected to do you might have a 10 percent risk of recurrence or metastases and you mm -hmm. might have a 30% risk as it is. So person one has a 10%, person two has a 30%, but then they both drink three drinks four times a week. Yeah. So are both of their risks raised the same percentage points above what they already are? Or is it just flat out like, that's the thing where I'm talking about like, if you've already gotten cancer and then you're suddenly in this other category, like, mm hmm the risk of like one in eight women are going to get breast cancer in a lifetime, that has already happened to me. So I have moved into another category. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. The horse is already out of the gate, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it worse to continue drinking because you already have years of it fucking your body up? Or... And also, like, I don't want to guilt people that have had a lot of drinks over the years, too, because... Of all my friends that I was, like, going to club nights with all the time and, like, yeah. Seattle nightlife, most of them are still alive. You know? <laughs> and, like, yeah. I am definitely one of the outliers for being this young and diagnosed with cancer. But. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, like, we can just do the best we can and make the choices that feel best for us. And it sucks that there really is no definitive answer. Like, you can't say if you never have alcohol, you won't get cancer, obviously, because there are a million reasons why people get cancer. And I mean, some shoe cobblers don't even drink. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, after a day of carving clogs, <laughs> I imagine they just like to wind down. I know. Well, I'm sorry that we don't have an answer. Here is one thing, though. If you are drinking too much and it's something that's making you feel guilty and you already were feeling guilty about it before cancer and it's getting in the way of shit, maybe cancer is a good excuse to take a look and make some changes. Why not? Yeah. But if you're just feeling guilty and... You're not drinking very much. Just do whatever you want. I don't actually have advice. I just feel like everybody can just do whatever they feel good about. They really can. But I get it. Yeah, I get it too. And 
It is a good excuse. If you are somebody who's like friends and family will be like, why aren't you drinking? Then you should definitely drink. Cancer is a great excuse. Because you don't want them looking <laughs> at you weird. That's my only advice. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I just don't want anybody to tell cancer people what to do. I know. With their bodies or how to feel about anything because that's all we get told. It is that thing, though, where it's like, if I ever got cancer, I would definitely like quit my job as a teacher and become a spin instructor, you know, because then I could <laughs> be healthy. I actually did think about becoming a spin instructor, when I got cancer. <laughs> but I didn't do Did you really? I did. Honestly, I really did. Because like I was saying, when I did go to spin class all the time, I fucking loved it. Like I love spin class. And I thought I need to like get back into a career after treatment anyway and like a lot of people do career changes that's another thing we could do a whole episode on people mm -hmm. it's like your saturn returns is like yes it's like saturn <laughs> returns part b cancer um but you know you like reevaluate what makes you happy in your life and changes you've been wanting to make and yeah absolutely but not that the change I had been wanting to make was to become a spin instructor, but I did think like, Jesus, how would I fit in all the exercise I need to do to lower my recurrence risk with being a mom and like having a social life and needing to make money? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, shit, I have a young child. Like if I was teaching like three spin classes a week. And then I would be getting my exercise in and getting paid for it and getting to socialize because I like to socialize, you know, so I'd be like meeting people that were coming into the gym. I just, I don't know. Maybe I still will do it. Maybe I'm going to become a crazy ass jock. Maybe you will. Are you going to dump me? I won't dump you, but I will never go to your class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to say. <sighs> well, I'll try to keep drinking if I become <laughs> instructors. <laughs> cancel that out but anyway it's because they also they would do it for you like i said this i think when i was when we were drinking and recording this episode <laughs> that like <laughs> i would run a mile a day to take your cancer away stuff like thank you yeah i would absolutely i 100 percent believe that i am not lying when I, I'm not like New Year's resolutioning this bullshit and being like, I, I'm going to do this. Like, I truly believe I would. I mean, weekends off. <laughs> yes. But I would run a mile a day for like, what, two years? Is that what? Where do I sign? Yeah, I will fucking do that if your cancer would go away. So I think people because they have these feelings, too. Like they look at you and think, well, why? Why would she be even having a glass of wine? Like, I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just seems like any hoop you could possibly jump over for a loved one, you would do for them. So, like, why mm -hmm. are they not doing it yeah. for themselves? You know? Right. But at the end of the day, we're all just humans. It feels the exact same way to try and do shit and make changes in your life as a cancer person as it does for who I was five years ago. Yeah. I think, too, that people forget that it's an ongoing thing. Like, it's not like you said, you would do it for two years or whatever, but you just have to keep living. <laughs> and so I know. it's hard to make those long-term changes and just decide like, I'm never going to have 
dairy again right. because it, you know, it lowers my risk. Which isn't even true. It's not even true. But, you know, if that's not like part of your values, then it doesn't feel like there's a point. Yeah. And also it just feels like shit when you've already got cancer and even more things are being taken away. Yeah, life's too short. feel really... Yeah. So do what you want. Tell people to not have an opinion about your own decisions. Mm -hmm. Your body, your choice. I have an opinion about you having an opinion about me. (laughs) But if you want to go to the carcinogenesis show with me later, (laughs) we're on the guest list. I do. (laughs) I do, too. We need to make t-shirts, carcinogenesis. <laughs> oh my God. That's a really good idea. I'm going to make a show poster. Yes. And. Perfect. Awesome. Nobody steal our idea. <laughs> or do so we can sue you and then we'll donate that money to cancer research. <laughs> We're just going to hit it from all angles. I like the way you think. Um, all right. I mean, I guess that's our episode. Hey, send us a freaking letter, you guys. Just do it. Who cares? Just do it. Cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. Oh, can I give a quick update on a letter? Yeah, please do. I don't know if you saw this. We just got an email today from the gal who wrote us last week, Sarah. She was the one who had a question about how she could talk to her stage four mom about her living situation. Yeah. She was driving like an hour and a half right, a couple times a month. And we were like, girl girl that's what we said to her set some boundaries that is what we said to her um so she just wrote and she said that she had listened to the episode and that she's a regular listener now and that it helps her to better understand what her mom's going through but she said she can't tell us how much our response meant to her she said we hit the nail on the head when it comes to all the feelings that are wrapped up in having a family member with cancer, being a caretaker, and the mother-daughter-adult relationship. Um, but she said her actionable advice was really helpful and that she had already forwarded her mom's mail to her sister's address, but now she's paying the neighbor to mow the lawn. Yes. And she is also researching security camera options. That is a brilliant idea. And she said that... It's going to be such a relief to not have to drive out there as often. And once the cameras are set up, they can be checking in on the house. So, yeah. So she said, thanks for answering. And also, just so she doesn't feel like I'm making her sound like she's just writing us all the time. I did write to her to send her the link to the episode to say, I'm not sure if you heard this, but we answered your question. So. Oh, good. I just don't want you to be like, Sarah just loves us. She just keeps writing us emails. (laughs) She only wrote me back to be nice it was prompted but that's okay i'm so glad to hear from her again and sarah way to go way to set some boundaries yeah but don't you dare judge your mom for drinking (laughs) if she drinks (laughs) and you drink too if you'd like to yeah just do whatever you want whatever you want your body your choice applies to everybody not just cancer people and every choice Mm -hmm. okay thank you so much for listening boy (laughs) Cancer for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Diles and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehee. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com.
so much for listening. Thanks for listening. 